Jonathan asked me to speak on regarding parenting, and and, uh, we'll go through some things. And uh, before we do, let's go ahead and pray, please. Father, please, Lord, we ask that you would, Lord, grant us the power that's in your word to give her deeper understanding of what you would have us to know from your word, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would bless this time, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, and that you would teach all of us, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for providing this place, Lord. And we thank you for, Lord, just this home church and the people. Lord, thank you for protecting Sarah, Lord, just being with her and keeping her through this, Lord. And we pray that you would turn this to good, Lord, somehow. We don't know, but we pray for that, Lord, but especially that you would heal her and keep her safe, Lord. And also we pray for the Guatemala team, Lord. Thank you for keeping them safe in the... Lord, even hearing about an earthquake, Lord, and being with them, and we pray that you would grant them fruit and also a safe return. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All righty, well, Pastor Tim asked me to speak on parenting. As, as Randy mentioned, we have six children, and we've learned a lot over that, and what will, over the time of raising six children, and so can't do a whole lot in about 45 minutes regarding that. So, you know, what I wanted to do was really just kind of look at a few things and kind of capture the heart of parenting. We'll be cruising right along through Kings and Chronicles and just taking a look at three kings of Judah. So I'll I'll have you turn there in a minute. We'll be looking at, at some of the good and some of the bad. And, you know, we can imagine if any of our lives were on display you know, some of the mistakes that would be evident, um, you know, we probably wouldn't be crazy about that. So we'll, we'll look at that, but then some of the good that came out of it as well. And so that's what we'll be looking at tonight. But really, one, one major part of tonight's message is understanding that the highest form of worship that we can offer the Lord is, is rightly understanding God's Word. That's really the highest point, you know, the highest form of worship that we can offer the Lord. So I have a little bit of an introduction. There's a couple of things I wanted to address. The introduction is almost as long as the text, so don't get discouraged. I'll have you out by 7.30-ish, somewhere right in there. But there's a couple of things I wanted to address, some things that, that I see in churches. Uh, one is just talking about, about knowledge. You know, knowledge is becoming downplayed in our church culture, really knowing the Word, solidly knowing the Word. It's becoming downplayed. And it's being substituted with words like power, spirit, Holy Spirit, unity, worship. They're kind of substituting these concepts, but really it's, it's the, the, worship, the, the knowledge of the Lord that's one of the most important things. And, and really to emphasize tonight, yes, we do need to know the Word of God inside and out. So I'll kind of go out on a limb. We need to really understand the Bible, especially for the days that we live in, and We'll even see some examples of that, what happens when you stray from it. So in terms of parenting and you know, really protecting your children, raising your children, raising your family, knowing the Word of God is, is really the emphasis that can't be, you know, can't be emphasized enough. We have to go through the Bible with our children and ourselves as well. You know, nobody in the Bible is ever accused of being too book smart or anything like that. When you go through the Bible, you'll see so many examples where the Lord says, you did not know, you did not hear, you would not receive, you did not listen, you wouldn't receive my precepts, you did not know the time of your visitation. The people constantly did not know, they rejected the, the teaching. Nobody was ever accused of being too smart. You might see where people misused the knowledge that they had, like the Pharisees, you know, they sought to manipulate people. But, 
but you know, just true knowledge of the of the word is you know the essence overall. And I'll I'll keep developing this point. But we know that knowledge can can puff up. So my recommendation would be know the word, just be humble about it, just study the word. Don't try to manipulate people like the Pharisees. Just just know the word solidly and teach it to your children. Colossians three states that we put on the new man, renewed in knowledge of our Creator. So we're to do that daily. So again. The highest form of worship that you can offer to the Lord is rightly dividing his word. The other thing that I wanted to mention is the term the New Testament church. I wanted to address that and give a little bit of a warning. There's terms like this being used in churches abroad, including Calvary chapels. It's coming here as well. And there may have been good intentions in using a term like the New Testament church, uh, something about being like the church in Acts and things like that. But um, I would use I would point out that the, the term that the church in Acts used the whole counsel of God. The New Testament church is not a term that's in the Bible, so it's important to understand this. The terms that are being used are New Testament church and New Testament pastors. My concern is that that this will produce New Testament Christians, people that really only focus on the New Testament, and they're limited in scope as to what they read. And the trouble is it's confusing. It can mean different things to different people. You know, when you have to go to the Internet and look up a definition for something like New Testament church, and, and there's many pages defining it, it's really not helpful, but it could actually be dangerous as well. Have other people? We've got a small group. I can ask you questions. Anybody else come across this term at all? You guys seeing that? You know, I don't know if it's caused any confusion, but that would, you know, that would be the concern. But there are a lot of things in the Bible and in the Old Testament that the enemy does not want us to know, but we're called to know the whole counsel of God already. The, the, you know, I would say Satan has the church on the level where, in terms of the Old Testament, and not this church, thankfully, because we have pastors that teach the word, but you know, already sort of the mainstream Western American church is kind of like, eh, Daniel, you know, he encountered a bunch of lions, stuff like that, but that's about it, and there's no, not a lot of significant depth that I see. So we need to reject that and use, use the whole counsel of God. In the Word of God, the Word is likened to seed, so you can picture a farmer, you know, if you were a farmer, would you only, only want to use one quarter of your seed stock to plant your crops? Of course not. You would want to use all of it. Also, the word of God is likened to treasure. Same thing, you would want the revenue of all of your treasure, not just you know a quarter of it or a fifth of it. In other words, you wouldn't just want to use the New Testament. You've got the whole New Testament and Old Testament equally important. And lastly, the, the word is, um, it's also likened to a sword. So with that, you know, picturing ourselves in a battle, you know, this is kind of how I picture this in my mind where, you know, imagine yourself in a battle opposing an army and then suddenly, you know, you're ready to fight, but then suddenly the opposing general says, um, hey, I want you guys to, to, instead of using the standard three-foot sword, I want you to use an eight-inch sword and come battle us. So you'd be thinking there, you know, thinking no way, but then wouldn't you be surprised if your own generals turned to you and said, all right, well, he said we should, you guys should fight with an eight-inch sword. You know, it, it's, it sounds ridiculous, but that's almost what could be happening when terms like this are being used. So my warning is just to be careful with Christian jargon. 
regardless of its origin, you know, good or bad intentions, it's not a biblical term. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that. If that's caused confusion, I would reject that. I am a little bit suspicious of the term New Testament church, just that in churches now, that seems a convenient way to get rid of the God of the Old Testament that would judge sin. Judging sin is is kind of frowned upon in American churches. Judging sin, that's kind of a you know, that's kind of that ill-tempered God. We serve a God of love only, and that's, you know, that's all you need to know about him, and you can live whatever lifestyle you want. So that's a convenient way of eliminating that God of the Old Testament that judges sin, but it's not the full, you know, not the full picture. The Lord changes not. So I am a little suspicious of that term, and that's why I wanted to mention it, because it it sort of predisposes you to thinking, okay, if I've got a New Testament pastor, a New Testament church, I'm a New Testament Christian, that's what I'll focus on. It's going to provide, it's going to cause confusion with other people as well. So it's important to really know the whole counsel of the Lord, like Paul spoke of. And another example of this is, you know, Pastor Tim has talked about this a lot. You know, don't we all want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes, we certainly do. The way to be filled with the Holy Spirit is you can ask, but also to study God's word and study it in depth. You can be animated by another spirit. Without the word of God guiding us, you can be animated by another spirit. And you can see this on YouTube. Churches going crazy. They don't have the word of God guiding them and grounding them. So you can see that where they're animated apart from the spirit of the Lord, which comes through studying his word. Same thing with prayer. You could have a great prayer service. You could pray lots and lots of words, but without God's word guide, guiding us in that as well, that can, be, that can go astray. In fact, Proverbs 28 verse 9 states, He that turns his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. So those people that turn away their ear from hearing God's word, their prayer is an abomination to the Lord. So God's word provides us guidance even in our prayer life. And lastly, one other example is worship music, something that's, that's very big today. God's word still needs to guide our worship music. I thank the Lord for Tawan and our worship team. Tawan never seeks the spotlight. He's very humble. He seeks to glorify the Lord always. He's not sort of self-serving in any way. And always the songs glorify the Lord. And I don't want to lose you why I'm talking about this, but again, we need God's word in every aspect of, of what we study and learn. And music is something that Satan is, is more than likely going to use down the road. But if it's not grounded in God's word, and I, I dare say I think we're seeing that even now, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. But we see that with you know with uh, prayer with worship music it's interesting one one concept to really understand and really make the bible come to life for you is understanding that things that have happened before they're happening now and they'll also happen again and that will really open up another depth for you in studying the word of God. We know that Satan was a worship leader of some kind in heaven. We may not understand all of that, but when you look back in the book of Daniel, you see a 666 associated with Daniel, the, the statue that was erected in order to, for uh, Nebuchadnezzar was 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, and six, six instruments were played at that time. So there's a 666 associated with that. Any 
any 666 in the Bible is highlighting and keying you in to a particular aspect of the Antichrist or an Antichrist or the Antichrist. For example, you have Solomon, King Solomon, when he received tribute, he received 666 talents of gold each year in tribute. So that's something that the Bible is saying, pay attention to this. I want you to understand this. It's keying you into that. Also, Solomon's house, you see six steps plus 12 lions, so you have a 666 there, whereas the temple was loaded with sevens. Solomon, after he turned from the Lord and started worshiping the idols, you start seeing these sixes pop up, including a 666 regarding the talents of gold, but then his house is covered with sixes, multiples of sixes. And Solomon is interesting because he's a type of Christ when he does well, but then he's a type of Christ later. And it's tricky trying to, trying to study characters who are both kind of pictures of Christ, pictures of the Messiah, but also pictures of the Antichrist. You also have Goliath. He highlights the military aspect of the Antichrist, where he's just he's loaded with sixes. Goliath and his brothers have sixes associated with them, and that highlights kind of the military power that the Antichrist is going to be. And all this ties into the infamous chapter in Revelation chapter 13, where it talks about the Antichrist and it talks about his number will be 666 and, and the mark of the beast and so forth, which, which you all know. But see how well the Old Testament and the New Testament works. If you just had the New Testament to read, you would understand, okay, I understand this, this person, whoever it is, he's especially evil. I see the 666, but can you give me some understanding? I don't quite, you know, don't quite get the full picture. But if you only had the Old Testament, you'd be seeing these sixes around Goliath, around Solomon, around the statue with Nebuchadnezzar, and you'd be wondering, what exactly does this mean? There's some kind of evil associated with it. But the Old Testament and the New Testament, they harmonize this very well. That's why there shouldn't be any emphasis on the Old Testament or on the New Testament. They work together, they complement each other, and they'll, they'll kind of direct you back and forth. It's, you'll see in the Old Testament a lot of times the Old Testament will flesh out principles in the New Testament, and that's so important for understanding. So you might see New Testament principles, but then have, a, have examples of it in the Old Testament, which we're about to do, we're about to start that. And I could do a whole teaching on this. I, I, it's so important to understand what the Bible says, what's happening in our time, and then as well as happen, what's going to be happening in the future. So kind of a summary to the long introduction there was, number one, Knowledge of the Bible is critical at this point, and raising your children, they've got to know it, and also leading to the saving of souls, um, certainly being able to have an answer for people as well. Also, if that helps to clarify the term, a New New Testament church, you know, I, I think that's a little bit of a limiting term and confusing, whereas we want to be a people that stand upon the whole counsel of God, and we know the the word inside and out. And if we cast off the word of God, he said not to, not to add to or diminish. If we diminish that, he's going to hold us accountable to that. So a couple of summary points to that. Deuteronomy chapter 4, when Moses speaks, he says, he tells the people to keep the statutes and the judgments. This is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations and teach them to your children. So in terms of being a good parent, teach your children the word, have them ready in season and out of season, but also it's how people are going to see you. This is your wisdom and understanding. If you understand the word of God, that's how you're going to represent the Lord to people and potentially lead to their salvation as well. And how do we know in the New Testament, how do we know that we're Jesus, that people know that we're Jesus' disciples? 
You guys know that. So how, how would people know that we're a disciple of Jesus? We love one another, right? So that's very clear. What about in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, there's a test to know if you love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul. Anybody know? Any thoughts? It's similar. The, te- the test for that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord, fear him, and keep his commandments. So that's the test in the Old Testament as to whether you truly love the Lord is your rejection of the false prophets and acceptance and adhering to the, to the word of God. And that's, when I, read, when I reread that, I was kind of amazed because that's even if the sign comes to pass. It says, if the prophet speaks to you, or the dreamer of dreams, if he speaks to you and the sign comes to pass, Still, you, the sign isn't what determines whether they're true or not. It's, it's the word of God. If they start to entice you somehow to, fall, to come away from the Lord, so even if the sign ends up coming to pass, you still have to know the word of God inside and out. And when you think about that, that's, that applies even to false prophet and antichrist type stuff toward the very end. They're going to deceive the whole world. And they're going to they're gonna have some limited ability, like Jans and Jamri, you know, trying to imitate Moses. They're going to have some ability to pull it off, but you can't fall for the signs. And you wonder, how, how is the love rating, how would the Lord rate the love of the American church and the Western church based on the televangelists and everything that we see on TV? How would, based on Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, how would we do embracing sort of the false doctrine, the false teaching? Not, not everyone. I certainly don't want don't to categorize everyone like that too much, but just generally speaking, there's a lot out there that's false, and generally speaking, we're embracing it. And so <clears throat> I don't think we would do well based on that test. But this t- ties in directly in teaching with the heart of raising godly children is teaching them the entire word of God, not listening to, to catchy terms. The, the Christian church does not need anything like that anymore. So with that, that's the long introduction. We'll be, we'll be uh, digging into Second Kings and Chronicles. Like I mentioned, many times the Old Testament stories will illustrate, illustrate New Testament principles. I intentionally didn't... Pre- print a laundry list. It'd be too hard to do in like 40 minutes, you know, of kind of going over good parenting. That's something quick and easy you can do on the internet, just a quick Bible search on, you know, being a good parent and so forth. I like case studies. That's how I studied medicine. I like case studies where you learn a principle, but then you see some examples of it. And that's all we're going to be doing that tonight. Kings and parallels, there's kind of a double emphasis the story is told one way through Kings, then the same story is told the other way through Chronicles, and they highlight different aspects. So because of that, um, I'll try to paraphrase as much as I can just to, just to save time, but when you go through your own study, just so you know that, that they overlap, and that's because the Bible wants to emphasize something. And we'll be looking at three generations of kings, the kings of Judah, starting with Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh, and the lessons here are intended to benefit moms, dads, singles, teens, people who are going to be parents. 
this is for everyone, and it's we can we can all take things and apply them from this. The one thing that I think caused me to really meditate on on these chapters, I'm kind of fascinated by how you can have sometimes you can have a good king and then a bad king and then a good king and bad king. Have you all noticed that too? Has it all kind of been a little bit perplexing? Like how can you have someone David and then Solomon and then just sort of this little bit of a sometimes a downward spiral, not always, but you just kind of see that and you wonder, why does that happen? And we'll be looking at that. And I've often kind of made in my mind lists of the kings, both good and bad. And this is part of meditating on God's word. Maybe it's just nerdy, I don't know. But I, I like you know making charts and lists and things like that. If you were to ask me the top five good kings, I would say David, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Josiah, Solomon, more or less in that order, but I, you know that's not rock solid. Same thing with the top five bad kings, Jeroboam, Ahab, Ahaz, etc., etc. I know many of you are thinking, well, what about Manasseh? Where does he fit in? And we'll be talking about that, not to worry. So, but to save time, we'll be, I'll be paraphrasing a little bit. We'll start in Kings, just to kind of minimize here, not having to, having to turn back and forth. We'll start in Kings uh, and then work our way to Chronicles. And I'll just kind of paraphrase in some ways just so we can get the salient points of, of each of these Kings. If you don't mind turning, please, to 2 Kings chapter 16. I'll give you a moment there while I get a drink. Hopefully my swallowing won't get recorded. All right, 2 Kings chapter 16 is an example of how not to do it. This is King Ahaz, and Ahaz, I would say, he could, he's, he's right up there with King Ahab, King Jeroboam. He's up there. Jeroboam was bad because he introduced idolatry to Dan. And you can go to that spot today in Israel where King Jeroboam introduced the golden calf and he said, here be thy gods, O Israel, right in the tribe of, in the area of Dan, right in northern Israel. And so you can actually go to that very spot where that was erected. So Jeroboam's a bad guy. King Ahab, we know him as well. He, he was bad, but Ahaz was, was one of the worst as well. Among the kings of Judah, he was compared to the kings of Israel. And that's not a compliment. Being compared to the kings of Israel is definitely not a compliment. And some of the kings of Judah were pretty good. You know, some were very good, as we'll see with Hezekiah. Some were you know, pretty good or okay. All the kings of Judah were kind of, I'm sorry, all the kings of Israel weren't great. What Ahaz did, he made his sons pass through the fire. That's child sacrifice, one form or another. He made molten images and sacrificed his children to the Balaam. So this is key parenting point number two. Don't do that. Don't don't throw your children to the statues and burn them or anything like that. Number one, teach the number one parenting point: teach your children the whole teach your children the whole counsel of God. Number two, not sacrificing your children literally or figuratively. You know, career, divorce, things like that are hard on the children as well. Ahaz was not a good king. He wasn't a good father. He wasn't a good husband. What's amazing about Ahaz is that he could have sacrificed Hezekiah. Satan would love to have sacrificed Hezekiah, especially after all the good Hezekiah did. He could have gotten Hezekiah, but the Lord preserved him. But Ahaz was sacrificing his own children to how, to what extent we don't know. It's not recorded. It just says he sacrificed his children. He made his sons pass through the fire. 
but it could have been Hezekiah, but the Lord preserved Hezekiah. Thank the Lord. So due to, Hezekiah, due to Ahaz's rebellion, the Lord sent military defeat after military defeat to King Ahaz and to plague Judah. The king of Syria and the king of Israel constantly attacked King Ahaz. So Ahaz turns his alliance, turns to an alliance with the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. So here Ahaz, he gets so desperate, he one thing that amazes me about him is he strips the house of the Lord, takes all the treasure out, and tries to send all this treasure to Tiglath-Pileser to appease this foreign king and to try to try to build a relationship with him. So he does at first, Tiglath-Pileser, to an extent, he defeats Syria, and, um, and so that helps Ahaz a little bit. So then King Ahaz goes up to Damascus, Syria, and he sees an altar there, and he says, hmm, that looks good. I want to have my priests create that down here in Jerusalem, and we'll put that up. So he actually goes to Damascus, sees a copy of that altar, brings it back to Jerusalem, and recreates that altar to foreign gods right at the temple. You know, kind of the ultimate insult to the Lord there. And so he's, he's completely not following the Lord at all, and he does some amazing things, just taking taking all Solomon's artifacts out of the temple, stripping that down, sending it to Tiglath-Pileser, but then going to Damascus, Sirius, which was, he was defeated by Tiglath-Pileser, and, and he sees these gods, and he brings them down to Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 28.19 says, For the Lord had, you don't have to turn there yet, we'll turn there soon, but this is the Chronicles account of this. It says, For the Lord brought Judah low, because of Ahaz, king of Israel, he made Judah naked. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, distressed him, for Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord. So what that's saying is that the Lord plagued Judah on account of Ahaz, and then Tiglath-Pileser actually turned on Ahaz as well. And when it says distressed him, he made his tribute so high that Judah couldn't pay. And so... Um, but he did this, and it says, because they had, for Ahaz t- took a portion of the house of the Lord, out of the house of the Lord. So Ahaz took all, everything out of the treasury, out of the house of the Lord. So the Lord plagued Ahaz. And then verse 22, <clears throat> there in Chronicles, it says, and in, in the time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Lord? For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him. And he said, because the gods of the king of, kings of Syria helped them, therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So a really depressing verse when you read that all by itself, how Ahaz, he, he, even though he was getting plagued by the Lord, he wouldn't repent he turned against the Lord more and more. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus. And that's something that's hard for us to understand as believers, but the gods of Damascus were defeated by the king of Assyria. You have Syria and Assyria. Assyria helped Judah for a little while and defeated the kings of Syria. But then for some reason, Ahaz goes to Syria and he brings their gods back, even though their gods couldn't deliver the Syrians so it doesn't really make sense, but that's just kind of how we work in our idolatrous minds. And, and he was very idolatrous. The point is with Ahaz is he turned to the world and Tiglath-Pileser, the Syrian gods, they devoured him. They, they beat him up and broke him down. 
as far as us and being parents, that's something not to do is turn into the world and making these alliances, getting into situations that we can't get out of. Ahaz is a very graphic example of that. Interestingly enough, you know, you, you certainly wouldn't want your among your family records. You wouldn't want the record that Ahaz has as far as your family line. And this applies to us being husbands, wives, leaders of our families, even members of this church. It applies to everything across the board. The, the kings are not recorded just as historical books. They're meant to help you make decisions and see what happens when people stray from the Lord or they just don't seek the Lord's counsel or they actively rebel against the Lord. Remember, Paul says all these are for examples. So we're all kings and priests. So this helps us in exactly what, in seeking the Lord as to what we're going to do in these situations. So they very much apply, but you wouldn't want this on your family record as to really having turned away from the Lord or just rejecting the Lord out and out. Interestingly enough, King Ahaz is buried outside the tombs of the kings. He was so bad that after he died, they were just kind of like, just put him someplace over there. He wasn't buried with the kings. They were just like, chuck him over there, get rid of him, we'll, we'll move on. And that's exactly what happens. And that's, that's a testimony because the bad kings were, were sometimes treated that way. So now in 2 Kings 18, we have a major bright spot in Hezekiah. In my list of top five kings, which isn't worth a whole lot, but in the, the list I came up, I had a Hezekiah placed at number two. He was, he was just a fantastic king. <clears throat> he did that which was right in the Lord's eyes. He removed all the idolatrous images that his father had set up. So sort of you have bad son, good son, and that always perplexes me and amazes me. I wonder why Hezekiah was so good. Probably hearing the stories about David, you know, his great-grandfather and stuff like this. It's amazing that Hezekiah was so on fire for the Lord when Ahaz was so bad. It says in 2 Kings 18, verses 5 and 6, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him, for he cleaved to the Lord and kept his commandments. So again, key verse as far as truly following the Lord and Hezekiah's example, he kept the word of God and followed him with his whole heart. He even rebelled against the king of Assyria. He undid the wickedness of his father as well. And later Assyria would send Sennacherib, another king, uh, and an antichrist image, Sennacherib being a second king of Assyria that would come later to plague Judah and Jerusalem. And so you see Sennacherib, and he has a false prophet. It's very much a picture of the Antichrist as well, the false prophet being Rabshakeh. <clears throat> and this battle is, is high drama, where you see Sennacherib comes with a massive host, and Hezekiah tries to appease Sennacherib as well. He even resorts to stripping some of the, the gold off the temple doors, so he's getting desperate. Uh, I don't believe it's the same way Ahaz was, where Ahaz was, was foolish, but Hezekiah was trying to appease Sennacherib, but there was no buying him off. So the only thing that Hezekiah could do with his small army there remaining in Jerusalem is let Sennacherib hang himself, where the, this is a great history when you read through this, where 
Rabshakeh is mocking the Israelites, and he says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Hezekiah just orders his troops and everyone to be quiet. That's all he can do is just, just say, keep talking. So then the Rab, Rabshakeh says, have any of the gods of the nations delivered people out of the hands of the king of Assyria? And at that point, Hezekiah is like, that should do it pretty much. So the Rabshakeh directly challenged the Lord God of Israel. He compared him to the other gods of the land, saying, has, has anybody, have any of the gods been able to deliver out of our hand? And so Hezekiah was like, that's, that's it. So Isaiah comes and visits Hezekiah, and the angel of the Lord, a picture of, which is Jesus, comes and strikes that army and wipes out the army and delivers Hezekiah. So that's, that's one great thing that Hezekiah does. Now, if you don't mind, we'll switch over to Second Chronicles 30, please. I'll give you a moment to, to switch over there. We'll be switching to the Chronicles side of things. <clears throat> so Second Chronicles 30, Hezekiah attempts to unite Judah and the northern tribes, and this is known as Hezekiah's Passover. One key verse that's very helpful uh, is verse 2 of Second Chronicles 30. Multiple times throughout the scripture, Hezekiah is seen to take counsel, and he seems to surround himself with godly people. So that's a big pointer as far as being a good parent is if you surround yourself with godly people, it's going to benefit you and your children and your whole family. Whereas if you're not, if you're in kind of unsavory situations, you kind of reap what you sow there. Verse 8, one of my favorites is, Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. This is one of our one of my favorite verses as far as having families serve together. And this is one thing that should be done. We have our children serving as soon as they're old old enough in one capacity or another. Your children learn a lot by serving the Lord. I notice that it says yield, enter, and serve, kind of the anachronym for yes there. You know, if you're saying yes to the Lord, that's the anachronym that comes out of that. To yield to yourselves to the Lord, enter his sanctuary and serve the Lord. And so some of the people, as, the, as they were gathering, some of the people weren't properly sanctified as they had traveled. In Second Chronicles 30, verses 18 and 19, it states, For a multitude from various tribes had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover other than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon everyone that prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary." And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. We see toward the end of that chapter, the people rejoiced, made confession, kept another seven days, great joy in Jerusalem, which had not been the like since David and Solomon. So here, here we see true revival happening. The priests blessed the people, their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. I love that scripture. That's a, a messianic picture of what things will be like when Jesus comes back, where they actually decide to keep another seven days feast. Just an awesome time. This is true revival, true worship music. Everything is based on the word of God. This is what it looks like. There was repentance there. Everything is working there, and it's a great picture for us looking toward the future as well. Well, some things do happen with Hezekiah, even though he's a great, great king, at the end of chapter 32, and also in Kings, I know you all know the story, but 
but um, Hezekiah gets sick, but the Lord grants him another 15 years. But then he shows off his wealth to Babylon, and the Lord calls him on it, and that initiates a certain judgment that's going to happen. Hezekiah is like, well, thank the Lord it won't happen in my time. But still, certain judgment has to come because of what Hezekiah did. And Hezekiah is a great king. This isn't to point fingers or anything like that. It's for us to learn from. But the Lord initiate, or states that there's going to be judgment initiated. In 2 Chronicles 32, verse 25, it says, But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up, therefore wrath was looming over him and Judah and Jerusalem. Wow, that's, that's a little bit of a disturbing verse there. And thank God Hezekiah did repent. Thank the Lord he, rep- he repented of that. Judgment was brought later. But we see that Hezekiah was industrious. He prepared for battle. He, he did a lot of the right things. His great wealth did lift up his heart. He got proud at one point. And that caused the wrath to be a necessity. We know that the Lord loves the prosperity of his servants. It's just that we can't, we can't end up loving it so much like this that your heart gets lifted up and it, it can happen. This is an important point for parents in fleshing, out, in fleshing these things out. You could do a lot for the Lord. You could, you could do a lot of things, serve the Lord in a lot of different capacities and be a great parent. But we do have to be careful of the allure of the world. And we can't allow the allure of the world, the love of money, the love of things. We can't allow this to establish a stronghold in our lives at all. This is what it took to bring down the mighty Hezekiah was the love of the world, the the love of these things. Satan certainly would have loved to have gotten him at birth because he did so much good, but it didn't happen. I would say that this is more Hezekiah's own doing. He just wasn't careful with this so that he ended up loving the things of, of the world and that caused judgment to be a necessity. But you think about that in terms of your family as well. You don't want to do things that are going to affect your children down the road, your children and grandchildren. There are consequences to the things that we do. And so Hezekiah kind of did this to himself. I think the biggest thing that that I see out there is is that a lot of us could serve in a lot of different ways. And I'm not talking about in this church in general, but just say the, the American church, for example, we're allowing, through, through our prosperity, we're allowing the influences of the world to affect us. Cable TV, mo- movies, entertainment, ungodly relationships, social media, any of these things can happen. Our family is very careful with entertainment that we choose and even trying to be careful. Like we don't, we don't have TV or cable TV or anything like that. We do a family movie night once or twice a week. I try to be careful and stuff still is, has slipped in which I don't like. We're, we try to be very careful. Fathers, really, you're to be the, the gatekeeper. Dads and fathers, you're to be the gatekeeper as to what kind of entertainment comes in. And there's a lot out there. There's a lot in the world. I'm very careful even with Christian music now. We'll talk more about that momentarily. But I don't know if, I don't know if other people have noticed this, but the, the PG-13 of today is not the PG-13 of like 10 or 15 years ago. Have you all seen that? It's, unless you're a partially boiled fro- frog, the PG-13 of like 10 or 15 years ago is not the same PG-13 now. So just to, just to mention, and stuff has slipped by on me too. I've been like, oh, it's probably okay, and it wasn't okay. We try to be careful. We, we, can, you know, we can't be so busy that we allow the world to train our children. I think about, I believe it was Marilyn Manson, and maybe don't quote me on this as to exactly how he said it, but I'm, I'm sure he said it. 
Marilyn Manson being the, the head of the Church of Satan currently, where he said, if the Americans don't want to raise their children, we'll raise them for them. And it's as simple as that. If you're not guarding your children and your family, somebody else will do it. And the outcome may not be what you're looking for. So judgment would have to come, but later, as far as Hezekiah goes, the judgment would have to come. We don't want this for our families at all. Hezekiah was buried in honor. He was given one of the highest honors in um, after he died. He was buried in the highest honor, so he did well. He's someone that, that did well and finished well. Um, the small instances are mentioned there, how his heart was lifted up. He did repent, thank God. And any of us can do that. So it's not, to, it's not to point fingers at all, but to learn from this. The last king is King Ahaz, uh, sorry, Manasseh. So you have Ahaz, uh, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. And Manasseh, I've got to admit, is a mystery to me. He's in 2 Kings 21 and 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Kings 21 has nothing good to say about Manasseh, nothing at all. It's just, just a terrible report. terrible report. It says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He built high places, worshiped Baal. He worshiped the host of heaven. He performed witchcraft. He did all these things. He made his children pass through fire. Verse 7 states, he set up a graven image in the temple. He, he did so badly that he did worse than the nations that were surrounding them. And because of him, the judgments became obligatory. So Manasseh was a terrible king. And this is one of those things that always kind of was like a little depressing reading through here. Not really. I don't, I don't get depressed reading the Bible. It's kind of like, why? why? Why did they do that? Why did people turn away? And then I look at my own life and I'm like, oh yeah, that's, you know, I've done the same kind of thing. So, but you read through that and you're like, why? You had Hezekiah as a father. But so that, that's a bit of a mystery to me. <clears throat> and I'm sure you all have noticed that as well, where you could have such a good king and then such a bad king, at, at least apparently. So Manasseh, there's no repentance with him, and he keeps on being headstrong. So then he ultimately ends up being captured by the king of Assyria. He's taken away in chains. He's taken from Jerusalem, and he's humbled. And so it says in, in uh in Second Chronicles 33, verses 12 and 13, it states, And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the, Lord God, before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. I use the King James on that one because I like the way it said the Lord, he was God. Sorry, a little bit of an emphasis there that I like. But so Manasseh, sometimes the Lord has to use things of the world to bring believers or to bring people back into line or to get their attention, I should say. Manasseh clearly wasn't a believer until this point, but that's what it took in this case was Manasseh had to be captured, carried away, kind of beaten up, and then he got right with the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so it says in, in Chronicles, so Chronicles actually has good things about, about him. King says nothing good. And, and uh, it's, we see that in Chronicles, after he gets right with the Lord, it says he suddenly started building the city with proper defenses. He took away the foreign gods and the idol and the altars that he had built and cast them out of the city. He commands peace offerings and thank offerings. In other words, he has religious reforms. Seems like the people wouldn't even tolerate Manasseh's reforms fully. It's hard, hard to tell. There's probably not quite enough information, but it says that 
The people still kept their high places, but they worshiped to the Lord. By this point, the people were so kind of on the fence about the Lord versus Baal worship, whatever, and their idolatry. They wouldn't actually take down the high places, but they still did worship to the Lord. So they, they followed him to a point, but by then, things had gotten so bad in the country. I, I wonder what would happen if we got a godly leader in this country. We still have to pray for it, but I wonder if the people would go along with a godly leader. I know y'all have thought about that too with, with the way things are going in our elections and everything. Would we even actually tolerate someone who spoke the Bible and taught, taught the Bible? I, 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 you know, I wonder... So this is what happens to Manasseh. So it's interesting to just reflect on it. So you have Hezekiah, just a great king, and then Manasseh starts out so badly. It's amazing. And you have to wonder what happened exactly. And it's worthwhile thinking about this as as parents and leaders of our family and leaders of our church. Was Hezekiah simply too busy? Did Manasseh get a lot of influence from his grandfather, Ahaz? Why did this happen exactly? Was it an act of rebellion against his career-oriented father? That's something to consider. Was Hezekiah just so busy that he didn't raise his children properly? And the Lord will judge that. That's that's something. another take-home message from this message. The Lord won't tolerate that. You can do a lot of good, but if you're too busy that you don't raise your own children properly, the Lord will have something to say about it, and we'll, we'll all have to reap what we sow in terms of that. So... Um, and this does reflect on Manasseh. It reflects on Hezekiah as well as Manasseh. Manasseh certainly chose his own way. To an extent, both good and bad, it reflects on Hezekiah, meaning Manasseh starting out so badly, it seems like Hezekiah must have dropped the ball. I'm guessing. I don't know for sure. I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking about it. Seems like for Manasseh to have done so badly at first, it's a reflection on Hezekiah somehow. But the fact that Manasseh came back we see fulfillment of the proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So I don't know if Manasseh is one of the greatest prodigal stories ever told, where he goes so wayward, but then he actually does come back to the Lord. Hard to say. It sounds like we'll see Manasseh in heaven, praise the Lord. So the toughest question of the night is, how do you rate Manasseh? I don't know. I have no idea how to rate Manasseh. How do you rank someone who nothing good is said about him in Kings, just nothing good at all, But then in Chronicles, he actually does something that very few kings actually do. Manasseh actually finishes strong, which I find very interesting. A lot of kings like Asa and some of the different kings, when you read about them, they started out pretty good. Or or, you know, someone like Joash, they started out pretty good, but then something happens and they, they just sort of lose it and everything falls apart and they turn away from the Lord. And you see that again and again. Manasseh is actually one of the very few that finishes strong. And that is my heart's desire is that our church, not just our church, our families, the church would finish strong. In these last days, we've got to finish strong and we've got to be grounded in the word of God. One thing that I find really fascinating, and bear this in mind, please, when you read through the, the kings and the uh, Chronicles is Manasseh is he's interesting like Solomon Solomon started out as a type of Christ a type of the Messiah and some of the things he does are very messianic things that will be happening in the messianic age but Manasseh is a type of but I'm sorry Solomon starts out great type of the Messiah a lot of things he does are very messianic but then Solomon is also a picture of the Antichrist toward later on after he rebels and turns 
away from the Lord, he's a picture of the Antichrist. So those are the tricky ones when you've got them being where they're sometimes a type of Christ, sometimes a picture of the Antichrist. But um, Manasseh is the opposite. He starts out, he does some very Antichrist things. He sets up a temple, I'm sorry, he sets up an image in the temple. That is very Antichrist. We know that the, the Antichrist will set up an image in the temple for him to be worshipped, and all the world is going to have to worship that. Manasseh has done the same thing. He set up a, an image in the temple to be worshipped, but after he repents, he tears all that down. Then he's a picture of Christ afterward. He's an actual, he's a type of, of Jesus the Messiah afterward, after he repents and he gets rid of all that junk. Same kind of stuff when Jesus has to come back and he has to clean up all the stuff that the Antichrist has done. Then Manasseh, that actually makes Manasseh a type of, of Christ and he finishes well. From what we can see, there's not, not a ton of information, but he seems to do very well from the point of his conversion. So in summary, with the whole message, what I pray is that our, our families, individuals, our church would stand strong and stand on the whole counsel of, of the Lord using the entire Bible to learn the lessons of our predecessors. And remember, it's happened before, it's happening now. All these things, you know, like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun in Ecclesiastes. It's happened before, it's happening, and it will happen again. Please bear that in mind. Remember not to run to the world the way Ahaz did, nor love the things of the world even as Hezekiah did, but to finish strong. So that's the official end of the message right now. However, something happened that I thought was interesting. You can take it or leave it as being interesting, but I think on Friday, and that wasn't too bad, it's 7.40, so... Please forgive me. So on, I think it was Friday. I was kind of, you know, this is the message that I kind of had on my heart. And I was, I just kind of prayed, Lord, please confirm this is a, an appropriate message to teach on parenting and, or something like that. I don't e- actually don't even remember the prayer, but I want to glorify the Lord for answering a prayer. Um, I prayed that sometime over the weekend and the message was more or less in this form and complete. On Monday, just really briefly checking the news, I came across something really interesting that actually highlights a lot of the stuff that we're talking about that we just studied and put together in this message. So I, I think the Lord answered my prayer. Whatever it was I prayed, I'm, I'm not even exactly sure. It's a, some kind of help knowing, is this really the message you had for me? And, and is it too, you know, is it off the mark or what? But uh, has anyone heard of Together 2016 by any chance? Anyone hear about that? Well, what this is, is this takes place a month from now in Washington, D.C., a month from tomorrow, July 16th. There's going to be a big gathering in in Washington, D.C. Already about a quarter of a million people are are signed up to go, over a thousand churches, lots of pastors. And what this is, is it's an ecumenical joining of, quote-unquote, Christians together it's joining Christians and Catholics together. So that's, that's the purpose of it, is, is uniting Christians and Catholics. Guess who, guess who the keynote speaker is going to be via teleconference? That's right. Pope Francis is going to be the keynote speaker for this, this gathering. So it's Together 2016 to unite Christians and Catholics. It's very ecumenical. And... The list of speakers include, and supporting organizations include Bill, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, 
Crew, formerly Campus Crusade, the Luis Pulau Association, the Southern Baptist Convention, Speaker President Ronnie Floyd, the National Day of Prayer, and others. So some very mainstream Christian organizations are going to be at this conference together 2016. Real quick, I want to read a list of the artists and, and let you all decide, but this is as it stands right now. Hillsong United, Carrie Job, Francis Chan, he's a pastor, Crowder, Kirk Franklin, Ravi Zacharias, Jeremy Camp, Michael W. Smith, Lauren Daigle, Matthew West, Casting Crowns, Josh McDowell, Luis Palau, Tasha Cobbs, Lacey Sturm, Ronnie Floyd, Matt Maher. And so that's a lot of people that we hear on just sort of the mainstream Christian radio joining in this ecumenical movement to gather in Washington, D.C. Now, I don't know if maybe this wasn't presented to the Christian, to the truly Christian people. I was surprised, Jeremy Camp and Casting Crowns, you know, some of the solid folks. I was actually surprised maybe it wasn't presented to them as being this ecumenical thing where the Pope is going to be speaking. But uh, that is concerning to me. What was it that that we read there in Numbers 13? If that prophet or dreamer of dreams entices you to turn to other gods... Some of these musicians and entertainers, we have to be very careful that they're not drawing us in to follow other gods. I would say, based on Numbers, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 13, the Lord could be testing us to see where our love is because if we're following in and just joining in with everybody, that's a dangerous place to be. You have Rick Warren uniting Christianity and Islam, or Chrislam. There's actually a Chrislam church in Europe. I don't know if if that rings a bell with anyone, but there's Christianity and Islam being united in other parts of the world. Then you have this, true Christianity being united with Catholicism, and we're seeing this very ecumenical movement toward a one-world church, and we all know where that ends up. So it's something to to watch. The organizer of the movement, the the pastor, quote-unquote, states we are humbled that his holiness would choose to speak into this historic day is a testament to the urgency and the need for followers of Jesus to unite in prayer for our nation and this world. There's so many things wrong in that sentence, I don't even know where to start, that a pastor working for the Billy Graham Association would call the Pope his holiness is, is disturbing, except if you know the Bible, then it's not as disturbing. And this isn't to point fingers or anything like that, but it's important to know about what's happening, and it's not a good sign that that people would be joining in with this and, and following along. We should not elevate a, a single person to the point of, of anything like this. <clears throat> I, what, I don't know what churches are going to be doing. It makes you wonder, should we grab our rosaries and just everybody head up to Washington, D.C., and literally start saying, Hail Mary, Mother of God. I, after reading this, I was so disturbed, I had to... I had to find Nong, and I had to vent at the office on Monday when I found out, and then I had to let my wife know, too. I was just, I was all, you know, worked up about it, basically. <clears throat> and hopefully you guys will be, too, after you, after you look at the website and stuff. But, but what are we to do? I actually looked at praying the rosary. Like, what exactly is that? And it's, it's like a chant that you chant, like, five times and, and stuff like that. It's very robotic, what I heard on YouTube, and I didn't hear much, and, and this is not to, to point fingers. It, it's not that we hate Catholics or Muslims or anyone at all. It's not like that. We, we love them, and we would want them to come to the saving knowledge of the truth. However, we're not to lock arms with them 
and say we're all followers of Jesus together. Remembering, thinking about the, the Catholic prayer, both the Old Testament and the New Testament both condemn. We just read where the prayer is an abomination of those who turn their ear away from hearing the Lord. We cannot lock arms with people who turn away from hearing the Lord. We can preach to them, but that's not what this is. This is, this is one big, fat, happy family ecumenical love fest that's contrary to Scripture. <clears throat> and Jesus, Jesus calls that, by the way, the Hail Mary prayer and things like that. He warns against the vain repetitions of the heathen. So Old Testament and New Testament both contradict us. It's something that we can't do. It's not pointing fingers. We don't, we don't hate these people, atheists, Muslims, or anything like that. We want them to come to the truth. But look at what we just studied. What happened with the alliances that King Ahaz made? They were disasters. You don't want to join in with the world like this. And that's exactly what we see a large part of the mainstream church doing. I hope somehow that this was misrepresented when, when they invited truly born-again people to come sing and speak. I hope that it was somehow misrepresented. And now that the Pope has joined and stuff, I'm hoping maybe some will pull out. I don't really know. I don't want to point fingers or anything like that. We'll see what happens over the next month. But this is something that's, that's going to be happening soon. They're shooting for over a million people. They're a quarter of the way there. So we'll see. It's something you can, you can look at. Hillsong United, this is the last point here. Hillsong United is quoted. I think I got this on the website, but it says, I, one of the singers said, I love the name Together. That's what this is, the T- Together Conference. There's a power in unity and a blessing when people put aside their differences and gather together for one purpose. Remember what I said about the catchphrases, and this, this too is from the website. The message that Jesus loves us and offers a reset is getting lost in the noise. Jesus directly challenged a culture of division. Like I mentioned at the beginning, beware of Christian jargon and catchphrases. That's what a lot of the emergent churches, a lot of the churches are using now. Just catchy words. It's the wisdom of man. It's not from the Lord. I found it interesting. I don't know if this means anything, but the gentleman who is organizing all this, he's the author of the book, Reset. He's also the founder of Pulse, I don't know what that is. I haven't had a chance to research it. I just think it's interesting. That was the name of that nightclub from a couple of days ago where people were massacred. That seems kind of ominous to me. But the gentleman that's organizing this together, 2016, uh, he's the founder of Pulse, and he seems to use a lot of these catchy terms as well, like reset. There's no talk of repentance or Jesus dying on the cross. Just come on to Jesus and get a reset is, is essentially it. So the question is, do we sacrifice truth for unity? It would appear that's what they want us to do. But no, I, all of us here, I know Pastor Randy, Pastor Tim, Scott, all of us would say, no way. We would not sacrifice truth just for the sake of being unified. And if you want to be a good parent, stay out of Babylon. Stay away from this stuff. That's what's happening. The battle lines are being drawn. It's important for us to choose our sides. So, um, so anyway... Um, that's the end of the study there. Um, so I hope you all enjoyed the message. Let's go ahead and go before the Lord, please. Lord, we thank you for this evening and this time. Lord, thank you for your word, how it instructs us, Lord, and thank you for the protection that it affords us. We love you and we praise you and ask for your blessing upon our evening. Again, we pray for Sarah, Lord, that you would comfort and bless her body, Lord, and let all the tests be negative and just bless her and let everyone here have a safe ride home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.
to be 